All right, we could avoid difficult topics. It would make my life a whole lot easier. Because if, if I don't do this well today, I'm gonna get a ton of emails this afternoon and this evening. Uh, and so it's not for ease that we hit a difficult subject. It's because if we avoid difficult subjects, we do you no favors or ourselves no favors. And so today we talk about a difficult topic in our society. So I ask up front for your grace, if I don't use the right words, if I try to use a joke that doesn't go over well, if my tone is not perfect, if the right balance is just not there, I have no agenda this morning other than to be faithful to the word of God and to allow the text to speak to all of us, myself included. So will you grant me just a little bit of grace this morning as we hit a difficult subject? Not all of you will get married. I understand that. Not all of you will have children. <laughs> it's not because I know you personally, it's just statistics. Not all of you will have children. I understand that. But most of you will. So today, we look at what Proverbs has to say about child rearing and discipline. We're going to begin in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, with the title of the message being, Train Them Up. All right, let me preface it this way. Today, I want to add zero, absolute zero pressure on you to get married. In fact, my advice to you would be quite the opposite. Work on being the right person rather than looking for the right person. And then if God brings along the right person, so be it. Work on running as hard and fast after Christ as you possibly can, and then look beside you and see who's running with you and say, hey, do you wanna to run together? rather than just seeking desperately after somebody with pressure, that is not healthy or good. Get to know as many people as you can. Enjoy your time in university. Some of you have or will have a great desire for children, while others of you have given it absolutely no thought at all. Some of you will have no trouble having children. You will end up with five, six, seven, 10, 11, like some faculty members here. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. They are a blessing from the Lord. But many of you will not be able to have children or will have difficulty with infertility. You are not alone. Some of you will end up adopting. Some of you will never have children. But Proverbs talks about the wise person gains understanding and adds it to themselves so that they become wiser. So that's what I'm asking you to do today. As we talk about this subject, I am aware that there are probably are some people in this room that have experienced abusive discipline. The Bible condemns abuse, whether it is verbal, sexual, or physical. Abuse is wrong, period. And as Christians, we must stand against abuse in all forms. So please don't project someone's sin upon our God and what he would communicate to us through his scripture as we talk about this issue. And please don't ignore abuse for gain, whether it be economic or political or otherwise. In our audience today, we have parents, we have grandparents in here who could do a better job speaking to this issue and know more than I do. I admit today that I'm a parent and a fallen one. I mess up frequently. So maybe you can learn from some of my mistakes. But all of us recognize marriage is a good thing and that children are a blessing from the Lord. And if you don't, you need to. So hearing some wisdom from Proverbs will be good for all of us. 
So today, I want to present to you out of Proverbs this main idea. Parents have a temporary stewardship to shepherd a child's heart toward God's wisdom through training and discipline. Let me give that to you again. Parents have a temporary stewardship. It is temporary. It's not permanent. It's not meant to be. These are God's children. He loves them more than you will ever love them. He has given a stewardship to us to train them for a temporary time frame, which means that you are not to move back in with mom after you graduate from university life, all right? It's a temporary stewardship to shepherd. A shepherd is someone who guides the sheep, leads the sheep to water, leads the sheep to food, corrects the sheep, instructs the sheep, loves the sheep, trains the sheep. We are to shepherd a child's heart. We are not to discipline for behavior modification, but for heart direction. Toward God's wisdom, the gospel, the truth of Proverbs, the way of wisdom, through training, formative aspects of teaching and educating and guiding, and through discipline. Parents have a temporary stewardship to shepherd a child's heart towards God's wisdom through training and discipline. The main text, Proverbs 22, 6, and we'll jump off to some other texts from there. So Proverbs 22, 6, if you would stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Proverbs 22, 6 says this, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Dear Lord, as we look at this text today, I pray that you would speak through your word. I pray that you would guard the things that I say and the way I say it and the tone Lord, that it may be glorifying to you and faithful to the text. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. All right, the first main point is parents are commanded to train their children. You look at Proverbs 22, 6, the first word is train. That word train is an imperative. It is a command. It means to train up or to dedicate as in a skill or a behavior through regular practice or instruction. This word has the idea of dedication at the beginning of something. We see this word in Deuteronomy 20, verse 5, dedication of a house. We see it in the dedication of a temple in 1 Kings 8, 63 and 2 Chronicles 7, 5. We do things even on this campus like dedicate buildings for certain purposes. And when we do that, there is a plan for the facility. There is much work and planning that goes into it. And then it's dedicated to that specific purpose as it moves forward. The dedication takes planning and intentionality, which means that as we train our children, it should be one of purpose and not just reactive correction. You don't just meander through life waiting to see what has happened so you can react to it. You have a plan like you do with your course plans to move forward, to take certain classes, to have certain things in your mind, certain skills, certain abilities so that you move forward towards an end. To put it another way, we play chess, not checkers. We don't live life one move at a time ahead or behind. We play chess, looking at life in all of its aspects, three moves ahead at that particular time. We look at our children and what they need to learn and how we plan to guide them and instruct them in ways that enhance their strengths and minimize their weaknesses three steps ahead. We look at our own life and how we plan to grow spiritually three steps ahead. You look at your education three steps ahead. You look at how you're going to serve in the church and in the home and in society and at your work three steps ahead. Play chess, not checkers. In this aspect of training, there is formative and corrective discipline. 
you know this intuitively, but training involves the forming of something, the formation, the instruction, the teaching, the words, the guiding. We see this over and over throughout our own lives, but it also has a corrective aspect to it. In the formative aspect to it, even with children, you think about things like a child puts his arms up on the table and you wanna teach him proper etiquette at a table. And so you say, don't put your elbows on the table. Sit up straight in your chair. Put your feet on the floor. No, your feet don't go at the top end of the chair. They go at the bottom end of the chair. And you will say that 20 or 30 times in the life of a child, depending on what character and will and nature they have, as you use words to teach them that the right way to sit in a chair is with their bottom planted firmly on the bottom and their feet on the floor. You will be amazed at how many times little boys especially think it's appropriate to put their feet on the table. Not that I'm speaking from experience or anything. Formative and corrective discipline. All right, you don't have children. So how do I communicate this to you? Think about a dog. I'm not saying children are pets. But think about a dog. How many of you have a dog? Okay. Some of you may even have a dog with you right now if you're working with the paws for ability. I don't see any, but maybe you have a dog right now. Back there. All right. So think about a dog. How do you train a dog? You must be consistent in your wording. Not confusing, but you want consistency. You bribe them. I mean, you reward them for good things that they do, right? If they do something you want, or if you want them to do something, you give a treat, you give them attention, you raise your voice into silly connotations where you go, oh, good boy, good boy. And everybody looks at you like you're silly because you do this, but the dog's tail starts wagging and the dog recognizes the high pitch must be good things and the low pitch means I'm in trouble. And so there is consistency and inflection in how we do things, our tone matters. You correct them when they do things that are wrong. Some of you correct them by saying, no, sir. Some of you don't use sir or ma'am to your dog. You just say no or whatever. You consistently reward positive behavior and do not reward negative behavior. You build a relationship of trust with the dog, a bond. A well-trained dog has many lessons for the way of wisdom. You see it. You're either a good dog trainer or you're not. Now, how do you train a cat? Well, you don't, because cats follow the way of folly, not the way of wisdom, and so <laughs> I'm just... <laughs> I'll probably get emails over that. I'm just kidding, all right? I really don't like cats, but I'm just kidding. If you love cats, that's fine for you. There's no hope for them. Anyway, <laughs> think about a sport. How many of you have played a sport or currently play a sport? You have a coach. What does your coach do? Your coach uses formative and corrective discipline. Your coach tells you, this is what I want you to do. It's basketball season. We think about basketball. The coach tells you on defense, be in position, move your feet, have a solid base, get to where you're supposed to be. Don't reach, move your feet, get in the way, be, have good teamwork, be unselfish in your passes. Make sure that you're taking good shots. It tells you all of these principles. And when you ignore what the coach says, then one of two things happens. In practice, you run corrective discipline, or you set the bench, corrective discipline. You teach or train and you correct to reinforce good behavior and to show you that bad behavior does not work like you would want it to. We see this, and all of this is what it's talking about in life and in Proverbs when it says train, and we are to train up a child. To train up a child means from early on, 
The child is contrasted in the first part of this verse with when he is old in the second part of this verse, meaning that we have a temporary time frame when a child is young in which we can make an impression and we start from the very earliest stages. We begin in the very beginning with picture Bibles, short Bible stories, telling some of the great narratives of the Old Testament. Some of us even use veggie tales. Bob the tomato or little CDs that have goofy little songs that help you memorize scripture, which I still enjoy to this day. We move from veggie tales to Bible storybooks to Awana to catechism. If you don't know what that is, look it up later. You should use it. And scripture memory. We start them early and often. We should be a generation, you should be a generation that trains up theologians in the home so they are prepared then when they encounter society to defend a biblical worldview. Point number two, children are sinful. I know you're shocked to hear this this morning. I know you have trouble relating to this. But next time you see a baby, spend a little bit of time with the baby. They are cute, little, juvenile delinquents in training. They are selfish and self-centered, and the world is all about them, literally all about them, and it is when they're babies. And we train them to get that out of them, to teach them that the world's not all about them, it's about him. So if you're here right now and you still think the world's all about you, that's a problem. We'll talk about that some other time. This verse says, train up a child in the way he should go. Now this part of this verse has been interpreted two different ways. Some have said that the text is indicating a bent that each child has on which way they should be trained. There's some element of truth here because when you have children with different personalities or different skills, you can see that there are differences in them. And with some children, you can look at a child in a certain way and tears begin to well up in the child's eyes. And with other children, well, let's just say it takes a whole lot more to get your point across. While parents should be wise to encourage and enhance strengths and minimize weaknesses, that's not the main point of what this is talking about. The way in Proverbs is mentioned nearly 70 times. It forms one of the key principles of the books. It's why we are calling the series The Way of Wisdom. You see in Proverbs chapter 9 where we had the two doors on stage, the way of wisdom, the way of folly. The way here indicates the way that a child should go. And so here you train up a child in the way of wisdom. It's not the child's individual characteristics, but it's that the child is not naturally going to go in the way of wisdom. And so we are to train a child up in the way that he or she should go. So notice the presupposition here. The presupposition, which is incredibly important for you to get this morning, is that children need to be trained in the way they should go, which means they don't naturally go that way. So the presupposition is that children are sinful. That's not a presupposition in all of your textbooks and all of your disciplines and all that you will read. As you read some authors in history, philosophy, political science, psychology, social work, education, and other disciplines, you're gonna notice a secular worldview with a different presupposition. You may hear it this way. A child is a blank slate. Every person has a good heart. I believe at its innermost being, a person is good. Some former politicians have said. These words frequently represent a worldview that does not take seriously our sinful nature, perhaps even denying original sin or a creator, 
And that worldview then affects everything. It affects all of the presuppositions that lead to the way we view child rearing and discipline, education, psychology, social work, politics, public policy, etc. So let's look at Proverbs and some other verses to see what it says about discipline particularly and to see what it says about children and their sinful bent. Proverbs verse three, chapter three, verse 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. So you see this verse. Don't despise the discipline of the Lord. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He talks about this truth as an artist who perhaps draws a little picture not taking much trouble to amuse the little child. But if this artist is drawing something that's gonna be a masterpiece, the magnum opus, then there is great care and skill taken with what's being worked on. You erase, you scrape, you rub, you make sure that things are just perfect. There's great diligence and great care. And if you personified that canvas, the canvas might cry out in pain. Stop erasing, stop scraping, stop rubbing. I'm tired of this. Leave me alone. Because often that's what we do when we complain against God's discipline or discipline of other sorts. But we have to recognize that when we complain or despise the Lord's discipline, then what we are really asking the Lord to do is not to love us more, but to love us less. We're asking God to leave us alone as a childish sketch rather than forming us into his intended masterpiece. Hebrews 12, five through eight says this. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Proverbs, verse 13, chapter 13, verse 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. This is countercultural. You love, so you discipline. You love, so you correct. You love, so you speak truth. You don't go hands off and ignore or not engage or leave alone. Whoever loves is diligent and disciplined. Proverbs 19, 18. Discipline your son for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Another imperative, discipline. The parents are commanded to do the discipline and not to be passive. Discipline your son. For there is hope. The 20th time that you're telling a child, get your elbows off the table or stop lying or don't exaggerate or don't be deceitful or quit being mean or don't hit your brother or sister like that. And you think all hope is lost and you're frustrated in the moment, and you think, it'd just be better off if this child is dead, or this child's gonna kill himself or someone. The Bible says, don't lose hope, for there is hope. Don't set your heart on putting him to death. Don't think that it's better off if he dies. Don't think there's no hope for this particular child, the child that is the wayward child that has rebelled because rebellion is strong in that child. Discipline your son, for there is hope. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen. 
Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Folly, a strong word, is bound up, the picture wrapped up, entangled, bound up in the heart of a child. Here, countercultural words, sinful nature, predisposed to go the way of folly and not the way of wisdom. And so what do we do? But the rod of discipline drives it far from him. The role of the parent in discipline, formative or corrective, is to drive away destructive habits, the way of folly, far from the child so that the child can pursue or will pursue the way of wisdom. Or in other words, as our main idea states, parents have a temporary stewardship to shepherd a child's heart towards God's wisdom through training and discipline. This is important for us to note in our own lives too. Because there are days where I wake up and I go through my day and I recognize that I still have folly bound up in my own heart. There is so much folly in this heart that mom and dad, as diligent as they were and as much as they tried, couldn't get it all out in the time that God gave me with them. And so in my own life, and I suspect sometimes in yours as well, we have to recognize the folly, the bent that causes us to rush towards the way of folly and correct ourselves through the reading of the word, through the meditating on scripture, through prayer, through church, through encouragement with fellow believers to pursue the way of wisdom. Folly is bound up in our hearts. And if you didn't have somebody who tried to show you that and teach you that and drive that out of your heart, then you have a lot of work to do. And you will be held responsible for what you do with your life, with the stewardship that God has given you as well. Proverbs 23, verses 13 and 14. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Now, we don't have time to dive into this verse and do detailed study, but if you look at the word strike here, it's different than the word strike in other places in Proverbs. What this verse is really saying is discipline your child that you may save him from an early death. You may save him from going to the grave early or her Proverbs 29, 15 through 17, particularly verses 15 and 17. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. When the wicked increase, transgressions increase, but the righteous will look upon their downfall. Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. This verse shows us that a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. He brings shame to the father also. But here is talking about this in the relationship to the mother and how lack of discipline brings shame, but discipline gives delight to your heart. This verse also in some versions is translated as the rod of correction, but it's better translated as it is here in the ESV as rod and reproof. Reproof, the formative words that we use to correct somebody when they're doing something wrong. No, don't do this this way, do it that way. No, your thinking is wrong here because you have faulty logic in this way. The words that we use to correct, to guide, to teach, to form. A child left to himself will pursue the way of folly and bring shame. You think about a garden. If you take a garden and you say this garden needs to grow as though it wants to grow, so I'm gonna do nothing with it then what does your garden look like? It certainly looks nothing like a garden. It looks like weeds. 
for it to be a garden, there's diligent work that has to go in to get rid of the weeds and to plant good things in the soil, to tend to those things, to watch them grow. And that is what it means to train up a child, to plant good things, to pick the weeds out, to make sure we guard, we guide, we protect, we shepherd that child. This does not relegate the administration of discipline only to the mother. So if that's what you're looking for in this verse, it is not there. Parental responsibility. All throughout Proverbs, it's the parent's responsibility to train and discipline children. It's not the church's responsibility. It's your responsibility. It's not the schools. It's not the states. It's not the community. It's not the village. It's not the university. They may all assist in the task, but God will hold parents responsible for the temporary stewardship and then he's gonna hold each of us responsible for what we do with our own lives as well. Think about this. Most people spend an hour a week in church, 52 hours a year. You go to Sunday school. You spend 104 hours. You, you do a wanna. Add additional hours for that. But just at eight hours a day in the home per year is 2,848 hours. If you believe that all teaching and training should happen in the church, you have delegated a small portion of a child's life to be trained and formed spiritually and left a huge segment of their life to be untrained. That's not wise. It's our responsibility. So let's look at some application for corrective discipline. Here's your application on the screen. Discipline has two parts, formative and corrective. We should not begin with corrective first. Don't jump the gun. That should be a last resort, and even then, corrective discipline begins with explanation. Never, ever, ever discipline in anger. If you need to count to 10 backwards, do it. If you need to count to 10 backwards, or down from 10, or however the right way to say this is, 10, 9, 8, 7, you get what I'm saying. If you need to do that 10 times, do it. Be calm. You're not gonna react well if you're angry. So don't react, plan well. Abuse is never okay. Always clearly and calmly explain what the child did wrong. Now, if you didn't grow up this way, I encourage you to break the cycle, to talk to someone if you need to, to make sure that you view God as loving, gracious, merciful, and kind, as well as holy, just, and righteous. And make sure you pray with your child after discipline. And sometimes you may need to pray before discipline as well as after discipline. Uh, the prayer before discipline, more for you in your heart. The prayer after discipline to talk to your child about why you're doing this. These little actions now are going to have grave consequences in your life later on. What you have done at this moment is not that big of a deal. But what you're going to do 18 years from now is a really big deal. And so I love you so much that I want to do this now for you, to guide you, to shape you. Because I don't want you to make those mistakes when they really matter 20 years down the road. It's the love. It's the concern. It's the well-being of shepherding that child that needs to come across. Also recognize that if you provide foster or respite care for children in some states, you're going to be limited in the variety of corrective discipline you can use. Discipline is the mandate. We must use wisdom in each case and with each child in how it's applied. There is no one book for all. When reading books or articles about corrective discipline, make sure you examine the presuppositions. In fact, when reading anything, think critically and examine the presuppositions. 
ask questions. Was the discipline done in love or anger? Was it done for heart direction or behavioral modification? Did it treat the symptom and not the problem? Did it have proper formative discipline before corrective discipline? Did the parents pray with the children? You look at all of these things and ask these questions and be wise. The end of verse 26 provides a problem. It says, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And immediately all of us think, oh, wait a second. But what about so-and-so? And there's a case of somebody that springs to mind. Grammatically and rhetorically, some have put forward the option that we could say, dedicate a youth to his foolish way, and when he grows old, he will not depart from it. While we may like that, that doesn't solve the problem, because equally, there are people who grow up in homes that don't train in righteousness, that God graciously redeems and saves and puts them on the path of wisdom instead of the path of folly. So you still have the exception to the rule. Additionally, Proverbs does not indicate that the foolish reach old age, but that they die prematurely. Some will say, just give it time. You give it enough time, they'll come back around. But that doesn't always happen. So how do we respond to this? We remember the genre. We remember that Proverbs are principles and not promises. We remember that in this particular genre, when dealing with the exceptions, we recognize them, but we also recognize that the general principle still holds true. So let me bring in two other verses and some concluding points of application. Psalm 127, three through five. Behold, children are a heritage. Let me read that again. Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like the arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Children are a blessing from the Lord and our society will not tell you that. In fact, our society acts in the opposite way. Never in my life do I know of any other thing that we would say, Lord, give me no more blessings. I have enough blessings, but I'm done with blessings because my house is not big enough for blessings or my salary is not high enough for blessings. We control blessings to our convenience or our standard of living, sometimes out of necessity, but more often out of convenience. We delegate the development of blessings to daycare, to schools, to the church spiritually. Psalm 127 says they're a blessing. If in your thinking this morning, and I say children, and you don't think blessing from the Lord, then you need to realign your thinking with the word of God. Because children are a blessing from the Lord. It doesn't mean you have to have 20 kids. You should have whatever the Lord wants you to have. But you should think children are a blessing from the Lord. Now, I'm almost terrified to say this. But I'm going to say it anyway. So forgive me if I say this in a way that offends anyone. We don't do well with blessings that happen to come outside of marriage. If you happen to be here at Cedarville University and you find yourself pregnant and you're not married, then you have committed a sin by having sex outside of marriage. It's a sin. It's wrong. We have to call sin, sin. But the child is not sin. The child is a blessing from the Lord. So if you have committed one sin, 
Don't go have an abortion to hide your sin and commit another sin of a blessing that God has given you, even though it may not feel like or seem like a blessing. We in the church, we in the university, we in evangelicalism need to do a good job of not ostracizing those who want to make the right choice of keeping a baby, even though they may have made wrong choices prior to that. We should come alongside them and be thoroughly biblical in our response and accurate in our theology. Children are a blessing. And this is not easy. And we do not handle it well in the church in general. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 7. And these are the words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. When do you teach things like this to your children? When do you train your children? You talk of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk with them, by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, at all hours of the day, at all moments, at any time you see an opportunity, you talk about these things and teach them diligently to your children. You live life intentionally in all that you do. You find opportunities to talk about things that matter. Instruct others, listen to others, live a life so saturated in the gospel and the word of God that it flows out of you at every turn. Everything you see, you give praise and glory to God. All right, some final summary application here. Train them up. Number one, you will not have your children forever. It's a stewardship. So train them early and diligently and often. Think about wet cement. When you have wet cement, you can put your hands in it, you can draw initials in it, you can mess it up, you can do all sorts of things to wet cement. You leave for a little while, you come back, the cement has hardened. The cement is there, the cement will not change. You can put your hands on it, you can do a handstand on it, you can jump up and down on it. The cement is cement. Now, I'm not saying children get that hard-headed when they go off to college, but I am saying take care of the opportunity you have earlier in life. Shepherd your child's heart toward God by dealing with the root problem and not the symptom. You know, sometimes there are silly things that come to light. But those silly things that we really don't care about indicate a deeper root problem that is important. A rebellious heart, a careless tongue, deceitful intent. Those things that will ultimately destroy us. And so as we deal with these issues, we don't make a big deal on the behavioral modification so much as we talk about the heart direction. We get the heart direction right, the behavior will take care of itself. These relationships teach us all spiritual lessons. You will never know unconditional love like you know it when you hold a newborn baby in your hands. You will never understand rebellion like you understand it as the parent who loves and cares for a child who rebels against what's good for them. You will see the best of yourself and the worst of yourself in your children. It will thrill you and it will terrify you. These relationships will bring you the greatest joy and the deepest sorrow. These relationships will point out the need for the grace of the gospel. They'll point out to how much our Heavenly Father loves us in a perfect love, not a flawed love like we have, but in a perfect love, justice, and mercy combination. You will not be perfect parents. Give up that dream right now. You will mess up and it will probably happen within the first week or month. That's okay. But recognize that and cut your parents some slack. Some of you had good parents who made a mistake or two, cut them some slack. Some of you may have had parents that were never trained how to do things right, cut them some slack. 
Children don't come with a personalized manual of operation. Just principles, biblical principles, which is why we're doing this today. This verse and other verses like it in Proverbs are principles and not promises. This does not excuse lazy parenting. We must do our best, but even then we have no guarantee. Why? Because children have a bent for rebellion. They have a bend for the way of folly. And it's only by the grace of the gospel that we escape that destructive destination. So recognizing that, the most important thing we can teach our children is the gospel. To explain to them their sinful bent, to explain to them the grace found at the cross, to explain to them the power of the Holy Spirit living within them, to explain to them the power of God's word and having a personal quiet time and a personal relationship with Jesus Christ so that they learn to walk with God in a way that they communicate with God, in a way they hear what God wants them to do, in a way that they can follow and pursue God for Christ's glory. So what's our main idea today? The main idea is this. Parents have a temporary stewardship to shepherd a child's heart toward God's wisdom through training and discipline. I pray that those of us who have children will seek to do this and that those of you that will one day have children will store up this knowledge so that you can do it well. Dear Lord, today, if I have said anything in the wrong way or that is offensive, I pray it'll quickly be forgotten. But Lord, I pray that whatever is said that is truth from your word that needs to penetrate our hearts and perhaps transform our thinking, may we not be able to get it out of our minds till we submit our will to yours. Lord, help us all to live a life full of grace, holding forth the word of truth to glorify King Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen. And you are dismissed.